Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess, and in this episode, we interview Eleanor Drage and Carrie McCarrith about the ins and outs of feminist AI. Eleanor and Carrie are both postdoctoral researchers who are working on the Gender and Technology Research Project at the University of Cambridge Center for Gender Studies and in association with the Leverholm Center for the Future of Intelligence. In this project, they are working to provide the AI sector with practical tools to create more equitable AI informed by intersectional feminist knowledge. Eleanor Drage's work focuses on the application of queer, anti-racist, and intersectional methodologies applied to technological processes and systems. Eleanor is a research associate at Darwin College in Cambridge and Cambridge Digital Humanities. Carrie Macarith's work examines histories of gendered and racialized violence and considers how contemporary AI may reproduce or legitimize these histories of violence. Carrie is also a Gates Scholar, a research associate at St. John's College in Cambridge, and a research associate at Cambridge Digital Humanities. So we were originally connected to Eleanor and Carrie because they are also fellow podcasters. In fact, yesterday, June 1st, Eleanor and Carrie just launched their own podcast about technology, gender, and feminism. It's called The Good Robot and already has an amazing lineup of guests. But if you'd like to hear more details about their podcast, make sure you stick around for the outro of this episode. And now we are so excited to share this interview with Carrie and Eleanor with all of you. Today we are on the line with Carrie Macarath and Eleanor Drage. Carrie and Eleanor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Definitely. And today we are discussing the 101 of feminist AI. So before we get into the AI part of this, let's talk about feminism. This is a bit of a sticky topic. So I was wondering if maybe both of you can start off by defining in your own words what feminism is to you. And Eleanor, why don't we start with you? Thanks, Jesse. Yeah, it's a joy to be here. Thank you for having me. So for me, common, feminism is this common sense response to the fact that people continue to be killed, bullied, and otherwise mistreated on account of social power imbalances. So that's where we begin. Feminism is a complex genealogy of many, many movements that have emerged globally in response to this violence, abuse, and degradation, which have been cultivated by different forms of patriarchal oppression over time. So it has this really long and varied history. It's not one story or one set of values, but of course, many feminist movements have been and continue to be shamefully exclusive. And many have been transformational sources of love and solidarity. I always like to think of not just what feminism is, but what it does. And broadly speaking, I think feminist work combats structural injustice, which means that it includes and it must include and intersect with critical masculinities, critical race studies, crip theory, and many other areas which develop our understanding of why people suffer and why people inflict suffering on others. So at its best, feminism builds communities, solidarities, friendships, and even romances. Wonderful. And uh, Carrie, what do you think feminism is to you? 
Absolutely. I guess for me, the kind of feminism that I subscribe to is about radically overhauling the sexist, racist, ableist, homophobic, capitalist and prison-centric world that we live in in order to try and create another world where we can live fully and expansively. And I think one of the complicated things that it's really important to recognize is what a fundamentally contested ground feminism is and the way in which many feminist movements have also been highly exclusive, have been racist, have been carceral, have been anti-trans and sadly still are. So to me, I think feminism shouldn't be taken as a neutral good. It always has to be critically examined. And there's a really long history of this when we think about the genealogies of protests that constructed within uh, the British national consciousness in terms of how we think about what it means to be feminist, right? But there's also, you know, such extraordinary work led by particularly feminists of color, particularly black feminists and various kinds of solidarity collectives that to me offer far more promising routes to a different world. So from one contested term to another, we're also bringing technology and AI into this conversation. How does AI fit into a feminist uh, framework? And again, let's start with you, Eleanor. We want to define AI broadly. So let me start with technology and maybe let me start with how gender is also a technology. So gender scholars might know that in 1987, Teresa de Loretis explored how gender is a technology of difference. And what she meant by that is that it's a way of supporting human hierarchies that place certain bodies at the top of the ladder and other ones at various gradations further down. And people might question how you can possibly say that gender is a technology. Isn't technology a phone or a hydraulic engine? So when I say technology, I mean something that's crafted in order to accomplish an objective. And that's a very difficult definition to use. And it's one that's often used in relation to AI, something that accomplishes a goal or objective. But I take it from Bernard Stiegler, who saw technology as an interface through which the human interacts with its surroundings. So for him, techne, and he uses the Greek derivation, which means making or doing, techne crafts the human body through its engagement with the world. And so it's so important to remember that we need to resist this temptation to see humanity and technology as these two discrete units. They're mutually co-constituted, they shape one another. And we need to remember this in relation to AI. So this means that technology like AI as a technology is more than just a tool or an extension of human capacity. And humanity is more than flesh and blood. We have never really been just human in the sense that we have often understood humanity to be. Our cognitive and social development is imbricated in and indebted to technological systems. And that's where feminist posthumanist work comes in. So you have Rosie Braidotti, Jane Bennett and Karen Barrett all exploring these under-acknowledged interactions with humans and their environments that support our existence. And scholars from critical race studies like Paul Gilroy, Sylvia Winters, Akia Man Jackson, Alexander Wuhlie, who remind us of which groups and populations have historically had their humanity denied to them. So these populations, women or white people have also, surprise, surprise, been seen as technologically incompetent and they're still strongly underrepresented in the, in the tech industry. Maybe uh, Kerry can say a little bit more about feminism in relation to AI and then we can talk about bias. 
Yes, sure. I guess I, I'm always kind of coming at my own scholarship thinking about AI through very much the lens of um, Asian American feminism, but also, you know, drawing off my own experiences as, as like a mixed race woman, uh, always thinking about the ways in which gender is very much co-constructed with race. And so the reason why I mentioned that is because for me, uh, in my own feminist approaches, what really interests me about artificial intelligence, right, is the concept of the artificial and the ways in which certain kinds of personhood, so I'm drawing very much here from the phenomenal scholarship of Anne Anlin Chung, uh, has for some people, the artificial has been really central to the construction of personhood. And so she draws this extraordinary sort of genealogy of the concept of the yellow woman uh, and how the human's been constructed into relation to the object. And so, of course, you know, from a feminist perspective, I think there's a variety of ways in which, of course, this false binary between nature and culture has been such a central problematic in feminist analysis. But to me, I think the really exciting trajectories of that kind of analysis is bringing in critical race theory that is in and of itself looking at how the nature culture binary has been so central to constructing various kinds of racialized hierarchies, various kinds of racialized narratives, and the ways in which certain racialized subjects, including this figure of the yellow woman that An Chang points to, have only been made legible through reference to the artificial. So that's, that's a very abstract answer, sorry. Um, I guess that's the particular trajectory that really interests me at the moment. Well, actually, let's let's try to nail down from this abstract uh, concepts to something more specific and concrete. So I'm wondering, because when I think about feminism, a very specific image comes to mind. It seems like a very activist space, and, and it seems like something I would imagine like a feminist protest, but I don't necessarily imagine a specific technology. And so I'm wondering if, if either of you can give an example of a technology that you would consider to be feminist AI, and maybe even a technology that you would consider to definitely not be feminist AI. Maybe, Carrie, we can talk about Mumkin a little bit, because I would definitively consider that to be a feminist technology, because the way that we're looking at not only what it means to create good technology, but how to maybe shift this idea of, of bias and how we look for it is about seeking justice. And I really like Rhea Kaluri's idea of, not, of, of asking, how do we shift power in an AI? And that means creating technologies that are built for justice, optimizing for justice. And so an example of a technology that I think does this is Mumkin. And maybe Kerry, you can say a little bit more about that or is there another technology you think that does the trick even better? Yeah, of course. Um, so Mumkin's an app, uh, the CEO of the app is Priya Goswami. Um, there's a number of co-founders of this app though, uh, which is, uh, expressly attempts to facilitate conversations around female genital cutting and allowing people to practice having these really difficult conversations around FGC, around gender-based violence, uh, and also around sort of health and sexuality more broadly. Uh, and I think that these kinds of spaces being created through AI-enabled apps uh, can be really generative for allowing people to develop and express feminist ideas in a way that can feel very intimate and very safe. Uh, and I say that as someone who, as Eleanor knows, is often very pessimistic or very skeptical about some of the feminist premises of these new technologies. Uh, so I guess it's helpful for me sometimes to see these sorts of more radical ideas and projects being deployed. And then uh, to follow up, I, I really like Jess's question about what, uh, fem like the, the negative space of this, of like what feminist technology isn't. Um, because I could imagine an answer, I can imagine a world in which the answer is, what technology has been for 
you know, thousands of years. Um, but I'm wondering if maybe there's more nuance um, that I'm missing there, especially right now as we're talking about AI and this developing, uh, these developing systems that are coming from very specific places such as Silicon Valley. Um, if you could say more about kind of the current landscape of technology as it relates to feminism. Uh, yes, absolutely, sure. I think for me, my personal kind of area of concern uh, around this idea of like what kinds of technologies are really not feminist and what should we be deeply concerned with uh, for me would have to be around predictive policing and for me i think the kind of feminism that, that i'm interested in has to be explicitly anti-carceral uh, but i think as well something that i'm starting to pursue in my own work is thinking about the ways in which gender-based violence uh, sexual violence and domestic violence are coded into these technologies, right? So if you go to, for example, the FBI's communications about predictive policing in 2013, we have explicitly said that these technologies will not uh, try to predict or account for domestic violence because these are, quote, crimes of passion, right? And so we have this very, this very horrible misogynistic sexist idea um, that these crimes are somehow, you know, justifiable, that they don't count uh, because they're to do with sort of uncontrollable emotional excess uh, and so i think a delicate line that i'm always trying to walk in my work is saying on the one hand yes we absolutely need to look at the ways in which these technologies are reproducing these very old sexist ideas about what kinds of violence count while also making sure that these critiques do not get used to say oh the solution is to make these predictive policing technologies better at recognizing these forms of violence but to say this needs to be a broader critique of predictive policing technologies uh, and other similar castral technologies because of the ways in which they reproduce and entrench and optimize existing really, really damaging and violent relations of power. Between your two questions, what is a feminist technology? It's a technology that does good, not just a good technology, because I think a lot of practitioners still believe that you can build better technology and that better technology will be less harmful technology. We would say feminist technology is technology that actively does good. And that can be from all the technologies that are listed in Data Feminism, Lauren Klein and Catherine Dignazio's book that looks at feminist data collection methods and how they use, what they use for, for example, collecting information on femicide in Mexico, that kind of data collection efforts, that is a feminist process. Equally, as Carrie just said, the technologies that are most worrying to feminists are ones that attempt to not so much identify a body or recognize a body. You know, this is a gendered person or this is an asylum seeker, but actually create our idea of what it means to be a gendered body or an asylum seeker. And a few examples that I um, find most pernicious at the moment are Germany's Federal Office for Migration and Refugees is using a voice biometric technology that either validates or rejects asylum claims based on whether the accent of the claimant matches their account of where they're from. And that's interpreted by the people who are listening. So this reflects the these are national interests, this is border control, this is foreign policy that comes together to produce an idea of what an asylum seeker sounds like. And Pedro Oliveira is a sound artist who's doing some really beautiful work on this. And then closer to home in the UK, we have this photo checker that I used 
recently to put my passport photo on online so I didn't have to go and get it done and pay my eight pounds or whatever and it's half as good at identifying the faces of black women as white men equally compasses recidivism risk sale we're very you know we know this very well these are things that we are particularly worried about and where feminism is really good at intervening so in this conversation we've talked a lot about things that i was not expecting to talk about like race and cultural background and ethnicity alongside gender and i think from my background, especially since I don't really come from the social sciences, I always equate feminism or I've tended to equate feminism with just like women and women empowerment. But it seems like it's actually more than that. And, and a word that I actually learned more recently than I'd like to admit is intersectionality. And I think that's kind of embodying a lot of the stuff that you're all talking about here. So I'm wondering if you could maybe give us a quick 101 of intersectionality and how that applies to feminist AI. Uh, yes, of course. So intersectionality, uh, this term being coined by uh, the black legal scholar and feminist Kimberly Crenshaw, but having a much sort of longer genealogy and history as a way of understanding various kinds of social categories or characteristics and vectors of power as being fundamentally entwined with one another uh, and co-constitutive of one another, right? So that we can't understand gender without taking race, class, disability, and other kinds of categorization into account uh, and so i think what's really generative about this approach is that it doesn't say you know oh uh, oppression can be understood in an additive way it says no there are distinct kinds of oppression there are distinct kinds of violence that only make sense uh when we bring these things into conversation with one another so like to give a personal example um there are certain kinds of actions i i always understood about as being about gender right so for example um, I was taught never to toot my car horn for fear of, you know, experiencing violence on the roads. Uh, but it wasn't until I, you know, was first driven around by a wonderful white female friend of mine. Someone cut her off. She immediately tooted her horn. And, you know, my immediate thought was like, what are you doing? Like, what are you trying to, to get done to us? When I kind of realized like, oh, actually, no, that isn't just about gender. Like there's very much a kind of gendered and racialized configuration there that is resulting in that fear of violence. Right. Uh, and so I think you know, what to me is really valuable about intersectionality in the space of AI is that there is this tendency in data collection to collate and tag certain categories like gender, like race, like age, um, in these very discrete ways. And of course, you know, for me, I'm always understanding my feminist work as saying like, uh, for so many racialized people, like, you know, normative genders and sexualities haven't even been accessible or sort of had that kind of same resonance because of the ways in which they're so bound into whiteness. Uh, Eleanor, do you want to expand a little bit uh, on that in terms of how intersectional approaches to AI kind of informs your own work? Yeah, absolutely. And those genealogies are really important. And we go back to the um, Combahee River Collective and what they said about if black women are free, then everyone can be free because that means the toppling of these hierarchies. It is, however, a genealogy that originates in the oppression of black women. That's what we, we, we mean, we understand by intersectionality. It's a, a tool that is useful and we must remind ourselves of that in all the work that we do. Examples of this are the ones I just gave. So why are black women, why, is, why are photo checkers less, much less good at identifying black women than just women? I mean, by just women, I mean white women. You know, why? Why is that oppression 
seen across the board, you know, with the compass, age, it's not just um, race and gender, this is also age, compass is far less, uh, less good at being accurate about how likely it is um, that someone will reoffend if they're a young black male. So these are all these intersecting axes of oppression that come together to make AI particularly harmful for certain groups. I really appreciate, um, I think Carrie was one of your uh, definitions or um, uh, points about feminism in terms of that it's self-critical, um, almost by definition it sounds like. And uh, one of the spaces that we're talking about again is that technology design space again in this like Silicon Valley, which has is often critiqued for not being self-critical in the same way. Um, and so I'm wondering how folks who are listening to this podcast who might not be at the, they're not convinced, right? There's not, they're not convinced that there's an issue here. Um, they're not convinced that like feminist AI could possibly help. What would you say to those people um, that might help them maybe understand a little bit better? Well, maybe we can talk a bit about the kind of work that we're doing and what feminism does in that space, because we're working on debiasing AI, which is a sort of a bleak term anyway. What does it mean to debias AI? How can AI be made less harmful? And we know that mathematical definitions of fairness vary. So can feminism help be more specific? Can feminism do work in this space? And again, I would direct people towards data feminism because it has really nice specific examples of how feminist theorists that are so precious to us, like bell hooks, can be mobilized to do work in data spaces. And they give really nice specific examples. We are looking at data ethics, a kind of, um, now it is a, a multi-million pound space that everyone has a DNI team, everyone has a data ethics framework, and they're very expensive, you can get consultancies in. So we're asking whether feminism can do something a little bit different in that space. Usually AI ethics is grounded in this horribly Aristotelian understanding of what ethics means. But as we've just described, feminism works on much less wobbly ground because it's invested in the lives and needs of real people and real communities. And we've detailed that a little bit. So it can help us understand that addressing harmful bias in AI has got to be a culturally situated and specific effort. In other words, it's unlikely that we're going to find a, an effective universal ethics framework, this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. We, we don't think that's possible. Instead, it can help us understand that attempts to make AI less harmful often frame bias as something that can be you know, located and extracted from a system to return AI to a state of equality or neutrality. Now, we know that data is never raw and AI is never neutral. Those are things that have also come out of feminist work. So it's both technically inaccurate and missing the point to attempt to do this. AI produces harmful outputs that disproportionately affect marginalized communities because AI is very good at exacerbating and accentuating existing power structures. And feminism is very good at understanding how those power structures operate. So this makes for some really delightful collaborations. Yes, and I think for me, the way in which I hope 
I would get people really interested in this question of like, what can feminism actually do? Is I think feminism really drives home two questions, right? Which is, who is this for? And what is at stake? And to me, you can't do feminist work without that constant drawing back to, you know, when you say that a technology works, for example, who does it work for? And how does it work? And why does it do that? And I think we see this time and time again uh, in our own work, which is a technology is deemed to be, for example, accurate enough or efficient enough uh, so that it can be sold, so that it can be marketed. And then, of course, though, when you look at who it doesn't work for, when you look at who's been sacrificed in order to get a product out to market, it's always the same people who are the most marginalized. It's always the people for, uh, who have historically been sort of pushed to the margins, ignored and excluded, and those needs are not met. And so I think what I hope to get someone who's a little bit skeptical uh, interested in with this feminist questions is to say that yes you know there is a process of labor there's a process of learning that has to happen but ultimately you know if you want to create technology that really as Eleanor mentioned like does good not just claims to be good you have to be thinking about like who is getting left behind who is not getting involved in this process and that goes beyond sort of these very sort of mere attempts at inclusion and to like a really transformative project of questioning kind of the very foundations of what these technologies are for who they serve and what they do on that note I would also add that feminism topples the hierarchies of knowledge in AI. And by that, I mean, to understand an algorithm is specialist knowledge. And Tinnit Gebru calls the people that are in charge of that the gate gatekeepers of knowledge. And they are also the gatekeepers of power in AI. And what feminist knowledge can do is say, well, hang on a minute. There's lots of other people that have a really good understanding of how an AI system works. For example, the participants, the people that are exposed to those systems, the people whose data is taken from them in order for those systems to work. And what we're trying to do is encourage people to take this much more holistic understanding of what AI is and look at across the development and deployment pipeline, who knows what, so that those ideas can be shared a little bit because you can't have good AI as, you know, if, as Carrie just said, the teams aren't diverse, if it's not doing something that's good, if you're not involving the people that are affected, those people must be part of the process from the design phase. And also, and this is what something that everyone can do, whether you understand or not what AI is, you can say no if you don't think it's a good tool to use, we can all say no. And there's various ways we can do this. And as Jesse, you said, feminism is an activist practice as well. So we can all participate in an activist movement that, you know, whether you're signing a petition or you're taking to the streets, these have been effective and we can all resist. Let's actually follow this, this train of thought with action for a moment. And I want to talk about gatekeepers a little bit more because this is something that I think I see as a pretty big hurdle and like challenge in the instantiation of feminist AI globally. And so I'm wondering, in my mind, I visualize this this boardroom full of powerful gatekeepers who are most likely, you know, a homogenous group in Silicon Valley, 
who hold a lot of power and might not be interested in losing a little bit of money over lowering some accuracy metrics on their AI in order to improve accuracy for these marginalized groups and to help improve people who are in these intersectional spaces and help improve their experience on these platforms. And also to help battle and combat some of these systematic oppression that, that is being encoded into these systems. And so I'm wondering, uh, not from an individual perspective, but maybe from like a more corporate perspective, what do you see as some of the possible solutions to breaking up the gatekeepers in the room or maybe making the gatekeepers look a little bit different and, and think differently and hopefully help combat some of these problems? Yeah, thanks Jess for that question. I think that it's key to remember that corporations are of course fundamentally driven by profit. They're accountable to their shareholders and they will be for the foreseeable. So some people think that this means that what motivates corporate activity in AI will always be fundamentally at tension with diversity and inclusion schemes and with the drive to make technology completely safe for everyone. Saying that, there's lots of really well-intentioned, kind people working in the AI industry who recognize that they're either over or underrepresented in that space and are keen to be part of this drive to increase diversity. There's ways that this can be done short-term and long-term. On the short-term, women are reportedly less likely to apply for a job that they don't feel 100% qualified for, and masculine language on job applications actively deters women from applying. So when encouraging more women to apply and to be hired in the AI space, we can look at these kinds of statistics and, and work out different hiring strategies. We can also try and change our minds about what an AI engineer looks like and think about how we identify the attributes that a good engineer should have in different kinds of people. To me, this is the, this is the kind of near-term work that needs to be done. And I strongly believe this is very important. This is the kind of incremental change that Laura Donaldson terms political tartar control. I quite like this metaphor of the daily act of brushing your teeth that needs to happen in order to have a kind of long-term effect. Feminism, though, asks a little bit more. It asks that we do this kind of work, but it also is a bit more ambitious in what it wants the world to look like. So it calls for fundamental shifts in favor of people who are currently disenfranchised by the status quo. I think what this means at industry level is that feminism can ask the impossible, and that's why it's potentially more likely to change the state of the field than perhaps an ethics framework ever could. Um, I think for me, it comes down to the political will of the leadership often, where I think actually, you know, despite the fact that I am a cosmic pessimist, there can be really transformative steps forward, I think, in how um, corporations engage seriously with the kinds of problems that activists in this area have been flagging now for like really quite a long time. Uh, but I think it ultimately comes down to, you know, do you think this is your top priority and does this matter enough to you that you're willing to put in the work and to make the changes, even if it seems like there are short term costs to doing that. Um, and I think often sometimes I get frustrated uh, in the context of institutions where people would tend to blame uh, the problems that they're experiencing on sort of structural issues or kinds of like systemic sexism and racism that lead to, for example, there's just not being enough job candidates or there's just not enough people here with this particular interest. Um, and of course, the systemic problems are very real, 
But we know that, you know, a very, very well-intentioned, powerful figures in these, in, in these institutions, in these companies, actually can make those changes and they can start laying down the groundwork that are not going to solve these systemic problems, but can make really serious headway into transforming the culture of a company or transforming what an institution is like. Maybe it's also worth saying that everyone across the board is saying the same thing, that regulation is the key to making better AI, less harmful AI. And I'd like to see regulation move in a slightly different direction. For example, people are still trying to make gender recognition software. Now we know that gender is not something that can be recognized by a machine. It's mutually constructed with race. It's, uh, it's something that isn't an internal attribute that can be drawn out by a technology and externalized. And yet there's so many weird ideas about what it means to de-bias an AI system that draw on these essentialized understandings of gender, like uh, Sensia is a recruitment app that is probably in a very well-intentioned way trying to, and it's, I quote from the website, strip gender from the back and front end of its system. And this is unlikely to be effective as it doesn't reckon with gender as a socio-cultural system. And also that sentence sounds really bad, doesn't it? But these attempts to move, remove gender entirely from a system really misunderstand what gender is. And I think it's low-hanging fruit, some really easy work we can go in and and help people develop their understanding of what gender is in a system. It sounds from what you both are saying that there's also an invitation here um, from a feminist critique that it doesn't just have to be this top-down regulation, but that there's also individual agency um, in these spaces as well, that it can be, there can be a, a bottom-up uh, way as well. And um, I guess one question that I have to close is uh, about the future. And I'm wondering from um, both of you and uh, Carrie, we can start with you. What are some of the future directions um, that you can see from this approaches taking to technology or perhaps what do you hope the impact of uh, the feminist critique can be on technology development into the future? Mm, that's really interesting. I guess instinctively, I'm really interested in, I guess the radical potential of feminist activism and organizing to ask people to profoundly reject or to ask to click pause really on technologies that are being developed that are going to be harmful to many, many people in communities, right? And so for me, a lot of this is to do with border control. Um, and, you know, we just saw, for example, this week, hugely, hugely excitingly in Glasgow, right, um, an immigration removal being stopped by a huge number of organizers who simply refused to let um, the van leave, refused to let them deport the two men uh, who they were trying to take into a detention center. And for me, you know, it's a horrible reminder of the kind of violences that the Home Office in the UK is, you know, committing like very, very often. But it was also so heartening to see like, wow, that kind of community organizing that on the ground sort of mobilization can bring about real changes. And we've also seen that in the tech sphere, right, around activist groups playing such a significant role and bringing to public attention the ways in which various forms of violence and injustice like are, go are happening right now with a lot of new technologies, but they're just going to keep happening. And so I think for me, particularly again in, in relation to the carceral space, in relation to border control, but also hopefully spreading out further as there is sort of growing awareness and publicity around the real risks of these technologies. Um, I like to think about this kind of, you know, radically transformative project of feminism. 
um, which for me involves both fighting for survival on the ground, but also like having the ability to kind of say no completely and think really differently about the potentials for technology and what it should be doing. I thought that example from this week, Kerry, was amazing. I cried watching the van surrounded by people in Glasgow. It was like truly, truly moving. I am loving the conversations that we have with our with our industry partners. I think that, you know, obviously you rely on people to be incentivized. And if they are, you can help them explore it a bit more. It's it's such a privilege, really, to be able to talk about something which I find so central to my life, you know, gender studies, thinking about sexism and racism, but you know how interesting really it is of how power structures form. I wouldn't be here if we didn't also find it profoundly interesting. And I think lots of people do too. And we're very lucky to be part of a discipline that can and must move beyond the academe and reach the public and grow with the public. It stems from the public. It doesn't come from the academe. You know, there's this really, well, there should be a really good movement this osmosis between the two. So I'm really enjoying that work. I, I love to battle with the question of how to incentivize people that really aren't incentivized and really don't want to hear and aren't interested. I'm sort of psych, psych, psychopathically not afraid of that. And I really enjoy the hard conversations as much as the easy ones. So I think that there is work to be done and it's possible and it's interesting and I hope everyone will be uh, motivated to, to look a little bit more into AI and know that it's not just an algorithm. You know, the algorithm has become synecdochal for AI. It's much more than that. It's about the people who are also paid so little to do the data labeling work. It's about the way that it's deployed. And all of us experience this at airports, going through border control. We can all be involved. We can all be interested and all understand. This is usually the point in the conversation where we ask where people can connect further with both of you, but there's actually a very exciting way for people to continue to hear more about these topics. And is actually the, the way that we were connected, that Dylan and I were connected with both of you, is that you have a podcast coming out on a lot of these topics. So could you just quickly tell us what this podcast is about and how people can find you? Yes, absolutely. So our podcast is called The Good Robot, uh, which is very much a provocation rather than a statement where we ask a whole lot of really fascinating people, uh, you know, what is good technology? Is it even possible? And then what does feminism have to say about it? And again, we're understanding feminism pretty expansively. So we have a range of really exciting people on the podcast, who some of whom are very much vested in feminism and gender studies but others who are invoking like a huge range of different approaches to technology but I think what they're all really doing pretty seriously is grappling with that question of like what does it mean to sort of have technology that is actually doing good in the world that is trying to combat these various kinds of injustice that we sadly see happening you know so regularly that we see happening daily. Uh, Eleanor do you have anything you want to add about the podcast? Feminism means such different things to different people as we've said today and it's been great to hear some of those and we define feminism very broadly as you know buddhist methods and lots of different kinds of things so that's been exciting to see and thank you very much for for mentioning it it's very kind of you also full disclosure uh, jess and i are both uh guests on that podcast so we have a kind of podcast exchange going here which uh there's no there's no sponsorship involved or anything but we just I, I wanted to name that it's a very exciting um to to be a part of uh this project with with both of you Eleanor and Carrie and I'm really excited to listen to um the other episodes as well 
Um, and uh, yeah, you're as, brilliant. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Eleanor. And uh, um, as as we do move towards closing, I just also want to say, yeah, we'll put links to that uh, to your podcast in the show notes um, and definitely let people know uh, when it's live. But for now, Carrie and Eleanor, thank you so much for joining us today and for a wonderful conversation. Thank you. We really enjoyed being on it. We want to thank Carrie and Eleanor again for joining us today for this wonderful conversation. And instead of our usual outro, where we debrief some of our immediate takeaways from this conversation, Dylan and I thought it would be best to send you all over to The Ultimate Debrief, an entire podcast series. As we mentioned briefly before, Carrie and Eleanor's podcast, which is called The Good Robot, just launched yesterday. They already have four amazing episodes out with Anita Williams, the venerable Tenzin Priyadarshi, Priya Goswami, and N. Catherine Hales. And also, you might hear some familiar voices in upcoming episodes. You can follow The Good Robot on Twitter at thegoodrobot1, and you can also find links to their website in the show notes for this episode. So head on over there and give them a listen. As for this episode, that's it for this week. For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at radicalai.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Catch our new episodes every other week on Wednesdays. Join our conversation on Twitter at Radical AI Pod. And as always, stay radical. 